Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. You may have noticed a little different environment for this program. Got outside, out of the Truth and Rhythm studios, into the nice, bright um, North Carolina nature environment. Uh, was inspired with, uh, you'll notice towards the end of this show, the lighting was not so great in the Truth and Rhythm studios. The uh, lights went out uh, basically near the end of the broadcast. And so rather than uh, have that cave-like environment, uh, get outside for a little fresh air. So welcome, as always, to the program brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. It's also available in its audio podcast version from iTunes and other leading providers. I am your host, Scott Dr. James Grolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your interest and continued support. This episode features Jarrah Harris, the multi-instrumentalist founder of West Coast-based funk band Slapback. Coming from a musical family, playing instruments and performing came naturally to Harris at an early age. As he grew up, he drew from several influences that included not just funk, but also new wave rock and more. That sonic fusion would later inform Slapback's lively sound, the lively brand of fiery funk. After gigging locally for a few years as Jarrah Sound, he logged his first professional recordings as a member of Randy Jackson's 1989 album, Randy and the Gypsies. Basically a one-man band in the studio, Harris recruited a group of musicians that in 1990 were dubbed Slapback. Sign and Warner Brothers, the act's first album, arrived in stores in 1992. Fast Food Funketeers was fortified by funk giants Larry Blackman of Cameo and P-Funk luminaries, including George Clinton and Bootsy Collins. The presence of those guests drew me to the record and also to catching Slapback's energetic live shows. Unfortunately, that was to be Slapback's only major label release. And although the group continued to release several albums and lots of first-rate funk through the ensuing years, Harris's act was victimized by the industry's fickle times and record company shenanigans. Although Harris went on to work with other artists, such as In Vogue, Cameo, The Times, Stevie Salas, and Bernard Fowler, and European funkers Dodge and Octave Pussy, he still kept Slapback alive and maintained a loyal following with the underground-style existence. All told, nine albums have been made available to the public, although some are compilations. Speaking of which, 2014's Best of Funk Mayhem has a lion's share of great slapback throwdowns. They include Kick in the Dew, Sway, We Come the Jam, The Key, It's Time to Go, Pure Funk, and You Get in My Mind. Perhaps the best way to describe slapback sound is cameo run through hip-hop sensibility, covered with P-Funk, with strokes of new wave, and of course, a heavy helping of Harris's infectious sense of adventure and zaniness. Harris also unleashed his first solo album called Only in 2012, which is a terrific showcase for his versatility. In this program, Harris recounts the ups and downs of his career in music and life in general. He talks about the amazing talents he's been able to work with. He discusses his own creative muses and instrumental facility and what's yet to come both musically and cinematically. Yes, he's also working in film. Jarrah was definitely a lot of fun to talk to and I enjoyed being able to relive some of my previous life in his Southern California stomping grounds. Hope you're enjoying the sound of the birds here. I know I am. I hope you'll enjoy this show. Thanks for tuning in once again. I'm so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studios, 
Jarrah Harris, co-founder and leader of West Coast funk band Slapback, and a gifted multi-instrumentalist, composer, and producer. Jarrah, how are you today? I'm great. I just have one question. Where did you get a uh, co-founder from? <laughs> it's really only me, actually, to be honest. Okay. I wasn't sure if you're your brother or whatever, you know. Yeah, you know, but that's good. You know the story after today. Because, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You got to fill us in on that and, of course, everything else. And you're coming to us from Los Angeles, right? Orange County. Which they would say uh, Los Angeles back when, when we were on Warner Brothers because not too many people knew of Orange County back then except for Disneyland. <laughs> so, you know, that's changed since then. But, yeah. They yeah. used to say L.A. Band, but reality, I'm from Orange County. We're from Orange County. Yeah, 714 area could have represented. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the 949. Yeah. Well, that's a newer one. But, yeah, so we are talking yeah. before we got on air. Of course, I'm from Los Angeles yeah. originally, and I still have my 310 number, so I held on to that. Nice. <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. So, um, um Thank you so much for joining me today. We we finally got together, and I yeah, see you're in your your. Uh, we're talking that's your studio in progress that you're working on, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's, it's actually it's really exciting. It's like starting. It is starting all over again, actually. You know, so uh, it's it's a uh, it's funny because I started. We were staying in a hotel for four months before we you know found the house and. Uh, but I still can be without doing music. So I bought like a little mixer and I was doing stuff in the hotel. And it felt like when I first started when I was 16 working on four track, you know, so it was weird going from, you know, the studio to just the basics, which I liked. So I'm like starting all over again. Yeah. So for those who don't know, you know, the area had tremendous issues with fires last year. And unfortunately you were affected by that. The funny thing is the, the LA fires weren't even close to uh our, our complex so basically i had a studio that landlord let me turn into a studio loft so it was a studio and my wife and i lived there so it was away from uh everything it was a random thing that just happened to happen uh that day and no one knows where it started from but there was no fires near us wow. but it, all, but all those fires were happening at the time so a lot of people thought that it was tied in with that but it, it wasn't and um but the winds were crazy so the whole thing the whole complex came down in less than five minutes it happened so fast wow yeah and all, all i could think was to do run in and grab my laptop and my uh my uh external hard drive because i was editing a movie at the time and it's all i saved and a couple of cameras no music stuff so, so how much music do you estimate that uh, you lost? It's pretty depressing, man, because I, uh, not only did I lose the music that I had recorded there, and I've been there for 17 years, but I just recently pulled out, I was going to do a, uh, uh, a CD, like a CD mixtape of all my early funk stuff, like when I first, started recording on the four track stuff and most people don't know the first album i had my four track there the whole time is we were always trying to emulate the sound on the four track because it had such a funky dirty 
sound. So we were always compare in the studio and we had a really hard time. We were like, oh, it's too clean, it's too clean, you know? But uh, the four track stuff just sounded so dirty and funky. And I was, I just gotten those cassette tapes and I just bought a four track that I could transfer it. So I literally had even the stuff I first ever started recording when I was 16. All that burned into fire because it all happened to be there at that time. Wow. Yeah. So you got to be thankful to God that nobody got hurt. Absolutely. That was that was the main thing. That was the main thing. And uh, and then, the, you know, I sensed through Facebook and social media that there was a tremendous outpouring from, you know, friends and, and fans. And I, I, and I got to tell you, that was the biggest. That was the biggest thing I got out of the whole thing is just realizing or, or being reminded how people really can be, you know, and uh, with social media and everything, people, you you see so much crap of people getting caught up into things. But when the real situation happens, you see how people really can be in this. It was such a good reminder. And uh, it really did something for me, actually. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, it's, I'm not, believe me, I'm not, I'm not crying. Like it's everything's good right now. You know, it's I'm actually excited for a whole new venture, you know. That's great. Rising out of the ashes. That's right. <laughs> yes. I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I'd like to have you uh, take us way back um, to how you got started in music and then step us up to you know, how Slapback got founded, which you mentioned uh, was not a co-founding situation. So right. how did you first get into music, Jer? Uh, my family, uh, I I started playing in the family band when I was four years old. We were kind of like the Jacksons. And um, uh, I was kind of the feature of the thing because my brothers were 16 and 15. My sister was 13. And then there was a four-year-old drummer. And at that time, you know, this is back in 1973, you know, it wasn't uh, something you would see all the time. It's not like YouTube where we can go in and watch a bunch of these kids, like, you know, whipping on instruments. But it was kind of a, a freak thing. And we did that. We had a producer looking at us from A&M at the time. And then my brother ended up leaving it in 76 to go play with the Silvers. And then the family band kind of, you know, dismantled. Then I got to be a kid, a normal kid for a while from age seven to age 11. And then uh, the family band got back together, started playing again. And and that experience, I guess, being older, being like a teenager doing it, you know, you, you start picking up stuff, picking up things a lot more. When you're younger, you have this ability to do, you know, play drums. Uh, you don't know that it's a a talent or you don't you know you take it for granted when you're just young doing it but when i reached like the age 13 i really had this uh itch for uh really wanting to do music you know that was my choice for the first time and believe it or not i saw missing persons on mtv and terry bozio just really inspired me as a drummer and it's funny because i my my biggest i guess legacy if that's what you want to call it is with funk and the funk community really embraced me because of that first record but i my older brothers and sisters 
you know, that was the era of like parliament and all that stuff for them. My era really was like uh, Bobby Brown and Guy and, you know, Rage Against Machine. And that was really, you know, like in my late, late teens, early twenties, that was, that was my era really. But then I got into, I met up with uh, Norman Whitfield Jr. and Harry Rice. Uh, uh, you know, Norman Whitfield Sr. wrote, heard it through the grapevine and his son heard my demo tape and I started work with him. So he started turning me on to all this funk stuff. And he's like, hey, you're, you're funky, but check this out. <laughs> you know because I mean? funk to me at the time was really uh, Purple Rain or more staying the time. Not that they're not, you know, because they are, but they're they're a more crossover type of funk. But I feel like uh, you always have to start somewhere. You can't come right in uh, and and hear P-Funk and, and get it, unless it's like Flashlight or something like that. So he was playing me stuff and I'm like, whoa, whoa. You know, like, I don't know about this. You know, it didn't really hit me. That came from like Duran Duran, <laughs> Missing Persons. And, you know, Prince was like, Funk to me, and uh, the more I got into that, the more I started getting deeper and deeper into uh, funk stuff. So I I learned it when funk the funk era was phasing out. So it was really weird because I feel like Slapback's contribution to funk was like as it was phasing out, except for the the, the hip hop artists were starting to sample it. So my my whole idea was Lenny Kravitz had just come out with this first record and I heard it, I'm like, oh, that's just Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and, mm -hmm. and you know, and it had such a, a great, but I like the fact that he was able to capture the genuine sound of like the Beatles and he did such a good job doing it. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of cool to do, you know, like a real old school funk band since everyone's sampling now and just do straight funk. So it was actually like a, uh, uh, people kind of trip out when I tell them this too, because they just think I grew up in funk and, you know, I grew up smelling funk and, and it wasn't, that wasn't the case, but I got, we got so into it. And then that's when it became a band. Cause before that it was Jarrah sound and I recorded all the instruments and recorded all this stuff. And I had like a, you know, guys in Orange County that didn't really know what funk was, but I would teach them the parts just so I could play it live. So that's why I was, Getting back to the story that it really wasn't a co-founder situation. It was, I had my own band with Jarrah Sound. And then I got Crank and Chainsaw and Scotty Bravo. The four of us kind of became more of a team. Then I decided like, oh, this feels like a, a real band now. So then I decided to come up with Slapback, you know. And uh, So Slapback first came about in what year? 1990. Mm -hmm. 1990 uh, and it's really uh, interesting because we got uh, interest from Warner Brothers that same year and the only reason why I think we had more people looking at us is because my brother and I had just come off of doing Randy and the Gypsies Randy so, right Yeah. so we would do like LA coconut teasers and advertise you know brothers from uh uh, uh, Randy and the Gypsies, and that that helped. I think people at least look at it. But I have been doing the circuit since '87 with Jerusalem. So a lot of the bands up there already knew who I was through Jerusalem. 
Who, who was maybe the biggest act that you played with as Jerison? Biggest act probably at the time was uh, to recall Chain Reaction. And they were like, uh, we used to do the Roxy. We'd, we'd play with them. And uh, they they were kind of big because they were big guys in the whole locking uh, uh, era. They were some of the locking dancer pioneers. And they had a soundtrack on that movie Salsa or something like that. So at the time, it was still all the pay-to-play stuff. So we weren't playing with any huge known acts. We were like, hey, you can play the Roxy. Sell 100 tickets. Sure, you can play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sell 100 tickets. You can play the whiskey. So we... We did that for a couple of years as Jerisound, and that's how I got into the whole LA circuit. By the time Jerisound ended, we were headlining and we weren't selling tickets anymore. So Slapback never sold tickets or anything. But it's just, man, it's hard keeping the band together. And honestly, the funny story is we were already, already lost two key players, and they were doing only two more gigs with Slapback. And Second to the last gig, Warner Brothers happened to be there. And it's like, wow, I really like you guys. I want to set up a, a... And we have been trying to knock doors down before. And, I, and, you know, people get frustrated, and I get it. But I, we, I, we, sent out, we sent out packages to 26 labels, and they all came back saying the same thing. Oh, it's good, but we're not looking for that right now. You know? So, you know, people get frustrated, especially if you're one of the ones in the band that were uh, kind of coached and they didn't have it in their heart like I did. So this kind of like, oh, this seems like a cool thing to do. And then you see all the frustrating industry and the ups and downs and they're like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And then all of a sudden Warner Brothers came through at the, you know, last minute. Well, that, that was definitely a tough time for, um, Band, you know, bands, uh, especially playing that kind of music, uh, early 90s, oh, yeah. you know, when the grunge came in and, um, you know, um, those other things were happening. But, you know, being in that area, were you uh, friends with or were you influenced at all by some of the other big local bands like, say, uh, Fishbone or Red Hot Chili Peppers? Uh, no, but I, um, ironically enough, we got signed to Warner Brothers as a, like a Chili Peppers fishbone type of band because Benny Medina passed on us and that was like the urban department at Warner Brothers at the time. Then Michael Austin, same day, we had three showcases that day, one for David Gamson, one for Benny Medina, one for uh, Michael Austin and Barry Squire. And uh, they saw the first one and we were kind of fired up and it was a good one. I, Benny didn't see the, we, we didn't do the best when Benny, when we did his showcase, but he didn't have the vision for it. He passed on it. And, but Michael Austin, they didn't really know what to do with this, but they just loved it. So the whole, which was Slapback's whole venture right to this day was like, guy, are they urban? Or are they alternative? What are they, you know? And so, they saw a live show. It was very energetic, like kind of like Fishbone and Chili Peppers. And then when we they started hearing recordings, they're like, "Geez, but they sound like P Funk." So they didn't know what to they didn't know what to do. So they sent it the demo out to a bunch of producers on Warner Brothers. Prince was one of them. I think Prince called it Imitation Funk. Uh, uh, 
Lenny Kravitz was too expensive at the time because I wanted Lenny Kravitz if I had to have a producer. Uh, and they sent to Larry Blackman and Larry Blackman told the label, this is great. This is going to be something huge. And they just got excited to hear from a, someone that has hits, you know, that's, you know, a label is pretty much a bank, but when they, they hear from a producer that has success, they just go like, Oh, great. If they, if he says so, then I guess we're, we're sitting in to get a place, you know? So, it, uh, and I was excited cause I was a big cameo fan. Cameo is one of the bands that, uh, I was influenced by. They, they were one of the funk bands that went the farthest, the, the longest before they came yeah, back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to see them with the Coca-Cola version of Word Up was like, yeah, they got pretty far. You know what I mean? And uh, so I was excited to work with Larry Blackman. Then he had me, uh, flew me out, staying in uh, Key Biscayne, uh, uh, Florida, for a week and work on the Emotion of Violence. Uh, cameo record and uh we got to know each other and the only problem i had with larry was after we started recording and it's funny again you gotta remember i was 21 years old and it was all about my band and the camaraderie of you know i'm down for my guys and but larry you know he's a business guy so larry didn't get it after he started working with us he's like uh he just used me to record. So we did nine songs and he didn't use the band at all. He just used me. He brought my sisters in to sing one time and didn't use them again, he just used me. So he tried to convince me to uh, just calling it Jera because he didn't understand. He goes, I don't understand why you have a band. You play everything better than your band. So why do you have a band? You know, he's just straight to the point like that. I'm just like, well, what do you mean? We've been in the trenches together. This is my band, you know what I mean? And I was really sticking up for my band. So I actually went, to Warner Brothers and said, hey, you're trying to promote a band that really plays, which that was their big thing. This is a band that really plays. And I go, but he's not using the band. He's only using me and tried to stick up for the band. I actually got him fired. And I didn't, that didn't sit so well with Larry, if you know, if you know Larry, the type of person he is. But it's funny, after going through all the trials that I've been through, probably would have been the best idea and then pull a band in later. I could have established myself as an artist. But then again, I'm, I'm not the Prince type. I, was, I wasn't I was the guy to say, yeah, I played this. Yeah, I played this. Yes. You know what I mean? I was kind of low key. We take pictures of the band. I like to stay like, take pictures in the cut. I don't like to be like, this is me and the band. So I didn't have the Prince mentality. So I just, that's why a lot of people didn't know that I played everything, you know, so I didn't yeah. Yeah put it out there that way. What, what, what was your sense of Larry Blackman uh, in a studio setting though, in terms of, you know, his approach and how he conducts his business? Uh, Larry's very, one thing I never forget, Larry came down to a slapback rehearsal and he stood up against the wall for the whole three hours and just watched. And at the end of the rehearsal, he pulled me to the side and he goes, <laughs> You're you're way too friendly with your band. That I'll never forget that because that pretty much tells you how Larry conducts business. And he doesn't he's cool with you, but he's not gonna get too he doesn't want you to get too comfortable. And I 
course, I understand why he did it. it. Cameo was extremely tight. They didn't sound like Cameo never sound like anyone got comfortable. They were very. <laughs> I, heard, I mean, Cameo was like, yeah, you were you were gonna go, you were gonna play with Cameo and be tighter than Cameo, you know. So, but that that's kind of like how he did it. Jared, of course, in the early '80s, he also cut half his band loose. So right, right, yeah. So you know, you know. So I, I didn't, uh, I didn't know too much of Cameo's history past. Uh, uh, She's strange because that's when I got into them. Was She's strange, and then I later, you know, hear about Funk Funk and uh, uh, Shake Your Pants and like ten or twelve guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I think a lot of that was the industry. The industry started changing that when, you know, when it's like the budgets are getting smaller too, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. by the time we came out, it was really like they weren't trying to sign a nine-piece band. They basically signed me and at my two sisters signed, you know, an inducement letter. So they had ties to them if they tried to go solo or something. Because they like the visual of them, but other than that, they're like, you can have your band if you want to, or whatever. But they didn't, they didn't sign the rest of the band, which is me sign. So, because at that time they were like, they're getting two rappers and a DJ at that time. You know, it wasn't the Earth Wind and Fire time anymore. It's like going the road with the DJ. <laughs> yeah, it was hip hop. Right, right. So that's. That's why I think I've always had to mix because and that's really that really was my era. But I, I was fortunate enough to get the the old school because I was playing fire as a cover when it was out. But people go, God, how old are you? I'm like, I'm for, you know, I'm 48, but I was four years old playing it. You know what I mean? So it's uh yeah, it's weird to have 44 years under your belt and, and well what do you consider your bass your primary instrument? Drums, drums, drums is with drums is without a doubt. That's I do. I can go a lot. Drums. I'm not. Drums doesn't scare me. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of drummers out there incredible, but I understand it enough to where if I wanted to, I play drums long enough and done enough things that, you know, I call myself a drummer. I have a hard time calling myself anything else. Even a bass player, which I have a lot of. A lot of fans for me playing bass and i'm like i don't really you know i kind of fell into that position because my bass player kept flaking and the band said why don't you just play bass i'm like can't be the bass player and the lead singer at the same time that doesn't look right you know and i just tried it one time and it was the tightest they ever sounded so i'm like oh i guess this does work but it was like an accident that i even ended up being the lead singer and playing bass you know that's interesting because Larry Blackman too was a drummer and ended yeah. up moving up front singing. So there are definitely some commonalities between them. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. How the way my my drumming style comes from Larry Blackman, Morris Day, Prince, Terry Bozio, and Stuart Copeland. Then I chewed it, then I it all up. Prince and Morris too are guys that moved up front and did other stuff also. Yes. Yeah. But the funny thing is, the thing that inspired me the most by Prince, I just recently found out, I was kind of bummed, I'm like, oh, wait, he's not playing drums, he's just playing snare on it, was uh, Lady Cab Driver. And the approach to the drums on Lady Cab Driver, 
that played a big part in what ended up being part of my style. But then I found out, oh yeah, it's drum machine and he just played the snare on top. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Why the fills are placed the way they're placed because it's not placed like a drummer that's playing a beat and then does a feel. It's, I always love that about that song. Yeah, well, he was so creative with the programming too. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is a, a great story. I'm loving it, uh, Jarrah. You know, um, probably at the time it wasn't so great when you're going through all these tribulations. But yeah, right. Uh, you know what what happened after you know Larry was kind of out of the picture for that first record. So then I ended up producing the record only because we ran out of budget, and Warner Brothers didn't want me to produce the record because. You know, I was, they just don't feel comfortable with the new guy. They knew I produced the stuff that they heard. And John Edelsby and Terry Coffey were pretty big producers on the climb at that time. And they brought them in and they came in and said, what, what am I going to do? Just have Jared produce it. Because they knew, you know, they were fans. And they go, just have Jared produce it. Anyways, they kind of got forced to it being that way. And so, uh he did it all at my drummer's studio. He had a nice studio in Mission Viejo in his backyard. And the best stories when when George Clinton, Fred Wesley, Don Silva, uh, uh, Trey Lude, all came down. Uh, Sue Ann Caldwell, all came down like a like a like a gang. In in Mission Viejo, and you know my my uh, drummer's parents are kind of conservative, well-off money people. That's why he had such a nice studio in his backyard. And George Clinton comes walking through the living room with the like just a white sheet on. The rainbow. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is this is like his his heyday of just like I'm I'm the funk. Like he there was nothing clean about George at that time. And, he, and Fred Wesley, I didn't know who Fred Wesley was at the time, you know. And these guys, here they are, Mission Viejo putting the funk down on, kicking the doing that just to see these guys work. Right there, it just, I tell you, man, there's, those are the blessings to me just to know I've, I've had a chance to, as I was coming into my own, like watching these guys, you know, put something together from from nothing. I mean, kicking the do at the groove and everything, but the stuff George would hear or the lyrics he would come up with, I'm just, what is in this guy's brain? <laughs> like, George, George is something else. Yeah. God bless him. He's still going. I know, right? Yeah. Proud of him. I'm proud of him, you know? So, but who actually brought you guys together, though? Bootsy brought uh, George in. Now, uh, Warner Brothers brought Bootsy in. Or they sent, again, they sent him a demo. And they reached out to him because I mentioned that he was one of the guys I would love to work with. And I had just worked with Aunt Fittler. So I'm like, oh, I'm getting close. I'm getting close. You know, Aunt Fiddler is the keyboard player. Maybe I can work with Bootsy. And when the Bootsy thing happened, I was just crazy. Because I just seen him earlier that year at the Coach House. And it was the first funk concert that I was like, I felt like I felt that concert. It was 1990. It just got done doing Delight. And he was bringing his band back in. That's when I realized that's what funk sounds like live. And it's unfortunate because the year before I saw George Clinton at the palace when he had Cinderella Theory out and I was so let down. Let out. 
Yeah, you know, but it was funny because I bought that album and me being, I didn't get into George Clinton until Do Fries Go With That Shake, you know? So again, like I, it's like I started from there, met Norman Whitfield Jr., then went backwards. But I bought Cinderella Theory and I love like Airbound and- uh, Tweaking. Tweaking and uh, I can't remember any love boat is sailing, you'll be talking tonight. That the, and and I knew that Aunt Fiddler wrote that song with them, and that was one of my favorite songs off of that record. So I was excited to work with uh, Aunt Fiddler, but I went from Aunt Fiddler to Bootsy, and then Bootsy came down, stayed in Michigan for a week, was working with me every day, and we got really close. And uh, he's like, you know, George would be great on this song, and and I, my eyes just went like, don't even what? He's like, I think he's in town, mixing Paint the White House Black. So he called up George and played Kicking the Dew over the phone. And George and the whole gang came down that night. Wow. <laughs> talk, talk about a, a kid just geeked out. I was just like, what is happening to my life all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. So oh, that's awesome. phenomenal. And then Bootsy was on uh, Give Me That Funk also. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted I wanted George and Bootsy to produce the record because see I had a hard time finding producers that I thought fit. And anyone I picked, you know, was either too expensive and you know, we we our deal was basically a step above a demo deal. You know, we only at the time twenty-five thousand for an advance and hundred and twenty-five thousand for a recording budget was small back then. You know, five hundred thousand was a good deal which is funny right now. <laughs> no one's getting any advances right now, but but uh, so it was really hard for me to find a producer. So then I worked with George and Bootsy. I'm like, this is it. This is what works. This is, are you kidding me? This is like, this is meant to happen. And they loved it. They embraced, the P-Funk people embraced us so, so quick. But Warner Brothers was like, they were having problems with George at that time with his record. And I guess he had gone $300,000 over budget and he wasn't that reliable at the time. And then I go, what about Bootsy? He could, Bootsy can't produce it without George. I'm like, so that's why they wouldn't let us have them, you know, produce a record. Mm. Wow. But that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Yeah. Who won? <laughs> <laughs> how much how much time did you actually get to spend with those guys? Was it a couple of hours? Was it a couple of days? Bootsy was Bootsy, we spent a lot of hours every day for for a week and then then whenever you come in town like for the wards or he would call me up i go meet him like we we got pretty tight for a while and then you know you just get busy and and at that time i was like the worst worst person for staying in touch with people i was you know i was really bad at that bad now is 10 times worse back then well before cell phones yeah, right. Exactly. That would have been easier just to send a text. Hey, Bootsy, how you doing? You know what I mean? But back then. It's before the internet, as a matter of fact. Right. Yeah. Very true. Um, but George, Georgia was just that day. And then we did a couple a couple shows with George. So, you know, then I saw George uh, uh, like eight years later and he totally remembered me and, uh, and uh, gave me a hug. We were talking about the recording and stuff. But, you know, I haven't seen, I didn't see George often. 
he remembers stuff, you know. I mean, it's crazy. I didn't think he, he would with yeah. all the drugs he used to do. <laughs> yeah, even me, you know, I had not seen him in a number of years. Went backstage, so yeah. he remembered me, give me a hug, you know. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, he's good. I like George. Um, so you know, I don't think we actually mentioned by name. So we're talking about the first record, which was called Fast Food Funketeers, mm -hmm. 1992. And um, you know, highly recommended. You know, I, I I knew about it because I was such a P Funk fan. So anything okay. that they were associated with, I gotcha. immediately went to and made sure I got it. Gotcha. Um, but the whole record was solid and funky, so that was the good news for me. Oh, great! Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, so once you got it out there. How'd you feel about the support or lack of support that you got and what eventually happened with that record? Well, well, it 92.3 to beat, at least for LA, really kind of jump started. And because you know, I think what happened with Warner Brothers, I know what happened for a fact is they just like, well, we gotta put this thing out. It was kind of a disaster getting there because. Larry, Larry's fired, doesn't happen, you know, Terry came in and John Ellisby and then they, they kind of fake like they're producing, let me, pro you know, it was, everything was such a ordeal. And about the time we uh, just had it finished, uh, they put it out in the fall of 92. And I think they just, just put it out to see who grabs it, grabs at it. And that's funny, the first, the first shipment went pretty well and I think because they had George Clinton and Bootsy on the back and Larry Blackman and Susan Rogers he makes prints and stuff you know there's there's enough names on the back that I think record stores and everybody were like oh let's check this out this is interesting fast food funketeers french fries on the cover you know and uh somehow it fell in the hands of uh uh Big John who was uh, the musical uh the musical uh programmer at the time at uh when musical programmers matter <laughs> at 92.3 and he just started playing 24 below on funky friday and then he started playing kicking and doing funky friday then he started playing you know uh don't know my heart to go on funky He's, he played like maybe five songs off of it and he would do it funky friday only lasted i think uh three three four hours on a friday and he would play so much slap act just on funky friday and he would he gave us the name, like the new keepers of the funk. Uh, that's what he would call us on the radio. And um, he helped he helped force Warner Brothers to releasing True Confessions as a single, because he said if they release it, release it as a single, he would put it on, you know, light rotation. And uh, Warner Brothers were like, you know, we, we spend money trying to get radio programmers to play, you know, songs in here they're like volunteering to to play your stuff and i really got to give it up to him because he really kind of kick-started the thing but then the thing that's deep about it is that Benny medina passed on us so the minute urban radio started grabbing at us there's so much politics because mm -hmm. we're like hey we're with the guys that have black crow and chili chili peppers and faith no more and how are these guys getting played on the beat and it's not coming through us? So the urban department didn't really want to lift their finger to help because uh, we were kind of in their turf and they passed on us. And uh, and so, and then college radio started grabbing at it. 
So we would have people show up at our gigs that looked like Marilyn Manson, you know, black fingernails, like they were fans of Slapback. We had such a wide reach. Younger people, older people liked it because they heard the old school in it. Uh, but then uh, there was just, we didn't have one, we didn't have a solid machine behind us, you know. It, but ironically enough, when the second, when Warner Brothers was dropping a lot of artists in 93, uh, we had just done Blue Light Special and I did it myself on like just 12 tracks because I had just gone completely opposite of the first record. I'm like, you know, I went from, I hate the red tape. I'm going to go just underground. I'm going to get, I'm going to buy a 12 track. I'm going to record it at, you know, our band house, did drums in the kitchen, use Radio Shack mics and turned it in and just said, either take it or not, because I didn't care at that time. And Benny Medina spoke up at the annual meeting and said, actually, I heard the new stuff and I like it. So then they kept us on board for a Blue Light special. People don't realize I, I walked away from Warner Brothers, which I wish I hadn't have. But my manager uh, advised me at the time, he goes, because they, they said they're going to push the record back six months, which gave us an option to uh, walk if we wanted to. So we chose to walk because we thought we'd take it over to uh, Columbia and over there with Randy Jackson. You know, it's just the band started falling apart. It got sloppy because people were like, oh, we're not with Warner Brothers anymore. You know what I mean? It's this whole venture. You'll never have enough time to hear the story of where, what Slapback has been through and the ups and downs. It's really, it's a crazy story. Yeah. It's a real crazy story. The, the politics of the labels and all that was going on in the 80s and 90s is just, un, it's craziness. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. so many horror stories about the politics and how, you know, great records were, you know, held back yeah. and not supported. And it just, yeah. some of the ones that were just, you know, sort of no rhyme or reason to it almost, you know? Right. Right. Sad. <laughs> Mad, gotta be maddening. Yeah. Yeah. This is me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it it tends to to piss off the listeners more than it does uh the artists sometimes. Cause you know, the listeners are just as hungry for good music as it is for artists to want to put something good out there, you know. And I study are you familiar with Stevie Salas? Oh yeah, great guitar uh, player. Yeah, so I, I was with also. Right. So I didn't know that Stevie I didn't know Stevie Salas at the time. He's one of the people that Warner Brothers tried to get to produce us because they they wanted that mix of alternative flavor in there because Warner Brothers didn't want to go more alternative, at least the department we're with. It makes sense we're with like the alternative department. They wanted to put just enough edge in there to where college radio would grab at it or alternative radio would grab at it. And they, uh, I remember they brought me a CD of uh, Stevie Salas, Buddy Miles, and Bootsy Collins, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, I was like, I, yeah, this isn't the sound I'm looking for. And then, you know, 20, 20 years later, I ended up working with Stevie Salas and we recorded like, you know, three records, three or four records together. And it's kind of funny. And I told him, I go, you were pitched to me like 17 years ago. And I said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, yeah, we're buddies now. But Stevie, I learned a lot from Stevie Salas. You know, and because he's, he's he's a great producer. He's one of the great uh, sort of unsung people in the industry. Yes, yes. And he told me something that really stuck with me that kind of changed my whole path is 
I was still up until Ghetto Funkography, still trying to do songs that I thought would be good for radio. And then I remember working with Stevie and I'm like, God, this song, this is a great radio song. He goes, I make songs for radio. He goes, I just make good records. I'm not worried about radio anymore. I'm like, that's a good point. And from that point on, I just like, yeah, I'm not worried about radio. <laughs> it's radio's different. You know what I mean? It's not where listeners like you and people that have the ears, they're not really listening to radio because radio is just, it's, it's, it's about something else. Radio is about something else. And that's a double-edged sword of the internet, you know? Yeah. It has so much uh, power to be able to find and expose that music, right. but monetizing it is a whole different thing. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, for sure. For sure, people think people think because we have YouTube, that it's a, that is great because now you can reach everybody. I'm like, no, YouTube is a big, huge ocean, so all YouTube is it's just as hard to get, you know, fans with YouTube because you still have to have a, a machine behind some sort of machine, whether it's you sitting at the computer every single day, hustling, reaching out, posting. You know, it's. It doesn't make it easy because we have YouTube and Facebook, you know. It's just more grassroots. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. If you cut out for it, you can really you can really do it. Some of us that come from the old school, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you want us to what? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get my hands dirty with that. You know what I mean? I'd rather get my hands dirty in the studio. I mean, I have to sit there and make friends and this and that. You know what I mean? It's a it's a whole uh you gotta play the game. Yeah. And now I like it. Good. Now I say I like it now because I've reached a place to where what I want to do with music has to do more with actually reaching to people and actually interacting with people. So, you know, I'm I'm at a different place now. That's the real exciting part is you can get almost something out there almost immediately and get feedback right, right away. Right. You know, right. that's very cool. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um I wanted to uh, share with you that I had seen Slapback, you know, on at least a couple of occasions in the 90s. And I can't remember exactly. Yeah. I saw so many shows. I can't remember the exact show, but you said you opened for P-Funk. I might have seen one of those. And I'm thinking yeah, that I probably, I probably saw you guys play um, like the Key Club or um, yeah, one of those types of places. I mean, it was great. I loved it, you know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It scares me because then I, I, first thing I think of, huh, what version of Slapback did he see? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have my favorites. Well, it would have been the 90s for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you played the Key Club for sure. I think we warmed up for Living Color there one time. Warmed yeah, up I saw Living Color there. Okay. Yeah. Right up in that show. Wow. 2001. Yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. I um, also saw Nickel back there, which I think was Steve Sellers. Yeah, and Bernard Fowler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah backsta we backstage I met uh, Keith Richards, was there? Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. He's buddies. Because, you know, Bernard's been with them for, God, 25 years, the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah, so that was a bit surreal. But um, So we were touring, the, the, the four of us, it was – uh, uh, Bernard Fowler, Stevie Salas, myself, and Dave Abraziz, the original drummer from Pearl Jam. Nice. Yeah. That's an interesting lineup. 
but it was cool. Mostly uh, playing uh, rock or what kind of song? Yeah, it was it was it was more it was more the rock rock stuff, you know, which I like too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Slapback has that edge. I mean, that's why I like it. You know, what I mean, right. oh, thank bring, you. Bringing those uh, diverse elements together is what really makes something special. You know, you talk about you have the the new wave background and right came yeah. out from that and you got the old funk and you got the rock and you know that's what makes it a melting pot and makes it special to me absolutely absolutely i love that you said new wave that's a, yeah. <laughs> new wave i like that yes